Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. Reserve the USS Shenzhou today for only $9.95 by visiting eaglemoss.com slash Discovery Starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 252, Homeward. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week we watch a couple of episodes of Star Trek, episodes of Star Trek. We take them apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and... Seeing whether they stand the test of time. Test of time. <laughs> that's, that's funny. What's funny? It just uh, the way you did the intro. It, it, it's funny. What you mean, like, like the way I talk? Is that what's funny to you? Uh, no, I, you know. No, 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 no. I don't know. You said. You said. I think what John meant was that... Uh, no, 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 computer, he's, he's a big boy. I think he can answer for himself. Why don't you tell me what's funny about me? Get the f*** out of here, Ken, please. <laughs> I almost had you, you mumbling, stuttering. Uh, yeah. This week, Homeward, the one where Worf has another brother. And this one's violated the Prime Directive in big ways. I've got trivia in a moment, but first... But first... I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please... Do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Mission Log. Oh, sorry. I should do the trivia thing, shouldn't I? I should introduce mm. you doing the trivia thing. Doing that trivia thing that you do that you do so well, sir. It's John Champion's Trivia, everybody. Thank you, Ken. Two times, two times. Today's episode, Homeward, the story is by Spike Steingasser. Now, interestingly, he's only got two professional writing credits, this being the first, his only other being an episode of Deep Space Nine. He does have a handful of acting credits, though. The plot was based on material by William Stape, and, yep, he also only has two professional writing credits, this and an episode of Deep Space Nine, though not the same story that Spike worked on. Naren Shankar is really the one who cleaned this up into its final form and gets the teleplay credit. Of course, Naren was originally brought in as an intern after he sent in his spec script. This episode was directed by Alexander Singer. This is the last of Singer's work on Next Gen. We met him way back with Relics, and he goes on from here to direct a handful of Deep Space Nine and Voyager episodes, so we will talk about him again. Kind of very excited. We get to return to one of those tried and true locations, Bronson Canyon, near the Bat Cave, 
the the original bat cave and um it was on fire <laughs> so they they went up to shoot they went up to shoot and then they had to evacuate because the location there was a wildfire as we sometimes get in los angeles and um yeah so they had to evacuate but uh the good news was that all of their area was spared so they didn't have to relocate they didn't lose any equipment but um yeah a little a little frightening that uh you show up for location shooting and it is a flame all right <laughs> they should have they should have worked it in and then Worf would be like no don't worry the fires are fine There'll be right. no storms. <laughs> right. That was that was your concern, wasn't it? Storms. Exactly. Exactly. Now uh, a handful of guest stars of note to talk about here. We have Brian Markinson as Varen. Brian's first TV guest appearance was on China Beach in 1990. He's extremely versatile, showing up in all kinds of TV and feature film roles. He's had memorable recurring roles on Mad Men, Party of Five, Millennium, and he's got loads more sci-fi cred, uh, Apollo 13, Caprica, Battlestar Galactica, Blood and Chrome, and he's got a few more Trek appearances coming up, including playing dual characters in a single episode of Voyager. Penny Johnson plays Dabara, another actor with just a ton of great credits. Uh, she's been a regular on The Larry Sanders Show and Castle, recurring on ER and 24 and The Paper Chase. As we record this, she has a regular role on The Orville, and we will see her again in a recurring role on Deep Space Nine as Cassidy Yates. Now, speaking of accomplished actors, Paul Servino. I honestly don't know where to begin with Paul Servino here playing Nikolai. He's done so much, uh, usually playing a tough guy, uh, feature films and TV. And by the time he did this episode, he was already well established. In fact, by the time this episode came out, he had already been in Goodfellas, The Rocketeer, and a long recurring role on Law and Order. Now, there's one particular performance of Paul Servino's that I want to mention here, uh, a 1979 TV movie called Dummy, co-starring LeVar Burton. It was based on a true story. LeVar Burton plays a deaf mute who was wrongly accused of killing a prostitute, and Paul Servino plays the city-appointed attorney who is deaf stellar performances from both of them. Uh, I remember that was uh, uh, got a lot of attention in 1979 when it came out, continued to play on TV for years afterward. I highly recommend checking it out to see two actors really at the top of their game. And um, interesting note about Paul Servino, he's a Star Trek fan, and so is his daughter, Mira Servino. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a disembodied voice on a show about Star Trek. Prologue. On Baral 2, there's a catastrophic atmospheric event which threatens to wipe out all life in a little under two days. From the Federation, Nikolai Rozhenko is there as an observer. He's the one who called Starfleet to get some help. Rozhenko sound familiar? He's Worf's stepbrother. Also, Worf has a stepbrother? Yep, he sure does, and Worf seems... worried. They haven't heard from him in a while but there is a deflector signal coming from the surface. There's too much interference to determine where that came from or what's going on, and the Baralans on their own wouldn't have that kind of technology. Their development looks like an early Renfair period. Looking into the foreshadowing machine, data reports that the disturbances are going to mess with ship systems from time to time, so get ready for that. 
Worf gets the okay to have a look on the surface, but first he'll get a little rhinoplasty courtesy of Dr. Crusher, so he blends in with the locals. He says Nikolai is brilliant but headstrong. He even quit the academy after a year because he couldn't follow the rules. They didn't get along so well growing up together. Worf beams down, and a couple of locals greet him suspiciously, until out of the shadows comes Nikolai. He seems like a really good fella, and proudly announces that Worf is his brother and has come to save them. Act 1. The Boralans have been hiding from the storms in a system of caves that Nikolai protected with the deflector shield. They don't know he's not one of them, and with Nikolai's assurance, they believe Worf is just a traveler from another village. Nikolai says they need to go to the surface, which isn't safe, but Worf is a seer, and don't worry, they'll be back. What they actually do is go up to the Enterprise, where Picard is not too happy with Nikolai's choices. Protecting these people violates a non-interference directive. You know, the directive so important they made it the first one. The Prime Directive. Nikolai says, yeah, but these people, this entire culture, would have died. At least this way they can save a shred of it. How about a protected area? They can camouflage the equipment just like they've been hiding his outpost. Nope. No good, says the captain. All he can do now is retrieve his records from the computers remotely and, well, it's goodbye for the Baralans. The atmospheric conditions are getting worse, and the bridge crew watch from the main view screen as the planet destroys itself. Picard speechifies, but Nikolai is disgusted and calmly leaves the bridge. Nikolai may have moved slow, but it was only because Nikolai didn't have to move for anybody. Around that time... A power surge is detected on the bridge as one of the science stations shorts out. The surge is coming from Deck 10, and Worf sets off to investigate. What he finds is his brother, in the holodeck, with the Baralans and a holodeck simulation of their cave. Act 2. Nikolai orchestrated the whole thing, creating the holodeck simulation, beaming up the Baralans while they were sleeping. He wasn't bound by Federation dogma, he says but rather he wanted to save lives. Picard gives him a good dressing down. This means the end of Nikolai's career, and not to mention he has now dumped a colony of Baralans on Picard's hands. Not to worry, Nikolai has a cunning plan. They'll find a new world. Yeah, it'll look different from Baral too, but they'll use the holodeck to slowly change the terrain to make it mimic the new place that they find. Beam them down again, and voila! No one knows what happened. Picard is skeptical, but he really doesn't have a better plan. He'll have to go along with it. And Nikolai assures him everything will be fine. He'll smooth over any problems that come up. Data and Dr. Crusher get to work looking for a suitable planet. Time is of the essence, though. Geordi warns that all the distortions that played havoc on the computers are going to destabilize the holodeck. So everybody get ready for that. It's an episode where the holodeck has problems. Because it's the holodeck. Nikolai will need to go back in to watch over the Baralans, and Picard needs one of his crew to keep an eye on Nikolai. Worf says someone like Counselor Choi would be a great candidate for that job, and Picard says, no, actually, you should be the one. Act 3. Worf and Nikolai enter the caves on the holodeck to let the Baralans know what's going on. The lie, of course. I mean, what's going on that's a lie. The storms destroyed the village, so they'll all have to navigate the caves to a new place far away. Where, you might ask? Far. It's far. 
About that time, the holodeck is on the fritz, and one of the villagers sees the hologrid start to appear on a well. She naturally freaks out a bit, but Worf, thinking on his feet, says, Yeah, it's an omen. A good one. All good from here on out. Data and Dr. Crusher have narrowed down the best candidate for a new planet for the Baralans. They recommend Vaca 6. It'll be different, maybe less hospitable, but it gives them the best chance. Of course, set, it'll take about 42 hours to get there. With some time to kill, Worf is learning from Varan, one of the Boralans, about their village chronicle, sort of a written history of their people. When they're ready to move out, he realizes he's missing part of that chronicle and needs to find it in the caves. Without it, his people won't have a record of their past. Varan sets off to find the missing scroll, and wouldn't you know, he goes deeper into the caves right when the holodeck starts overheating or shorting out or giving the spinning beach ball or whatever it does. Varan is curious enough that he approaches the arch and the full door appears. He walks right through it, and there's this young Baralan right there in a corridor on the Enterprise. Act 4. He's very confused, terribly disoriented. Voren finds his way into 10 forward where Deanna tries to, uh, what's the word, uh, empathize with his condition. She tells him that she's there to help and that she is a friend of Nikolai. He's moved to sickbay, but there's not much Crusher can do. She can't wipe his memory. Really, all they can do is calm him down and try to explain the situation. He's devastated at the news of his world being gone, and even more confused at the prospect of having to start a new life on a new world. In the holodeck, the rest carry on, working their way to a campground Geordi will program a little later. Worf has time to let Nikolai know what's happening on the Enterprise. Varen got out, but he can come back if he wants, and if he does, it's up to him to decide what to tell the others. This leads to some pretty heated bickering about Nikolai getting them into this mess by not thinking things through, and Worf, well, Worf being a by-the-rules guy, maybe lacking in compassion... At the campground, Worf is confronted by one of the villagers, Dabara. She's upset that he and Nikolai don't get along, and she just wants to see them all be one big happy family. Because it's about to be super familial. She's pregnant with Nikolai's child. Act 5. Welcome to Vaca 6. They're just about ready to beam everyone down, but there's a last little detail Picard has to take care of. Varen. He's giving it a lot of thought, but he doesn't know what to do. He wants to go back to his people, but he has no idea what to tell them. The truth might make him sound mad. A lie might be too hard to live with. Picard offers an alternative. He could stay there on the Enterprise and carve out a new future. You know, just like all those other people who are in danger and given asylum on the Enterprise, uh, Marasta Yale, oh, no, um, uh, Sarjenka, no, no, uh, Timison, ah, uh, well, there's probably one somewhere. On the holodeck, Worf is ripping into Nikolai about his relationship with Dubara. Oh, and it's about to get violent. At least it would if the holodeck wasn't seriously crashing right about now. The grid is showing through, and Worf asks Geordi to whip up a storm as a distraction. Wind, lightning, the whole deal. That's a good enough excuse to get everyone to run into their tents, and Nikolai promises Worf can make the storms go away as long as they hide. And energize. They're all beamed down to the exact same campground on the real Vaca 6, this time... No storm. Hey, 
It worked. All are happy and none the wiser. But what about Varan? He couldn't take it. He ended his own life. And Picard regrets that he was alone and unable to be a bridge between their two cultures. On the surface, the Vakans are now getting settled. Nikolai says goodbye to Worf. He's not leaving. His child needs a father, and the village needs a new chronicle. It's his responsibility now, and Worf seems to have a new respect for Nikolai. He won't be able to explain any of this to their parents, but Nikolai is happy. The end. That was some crazy, like, hand-to-hand that Nikolai was pulling on Worf. You think he would have taken him? I don't know, but did you see that stance? I don't know what that was. It was something with his hands, like nothing I've seen the Klingons do. Also, nothing like I've seen you know people do. I don't know what I don't know what that was, but I mean, it was it was good. It worked. I mean, yeah. I don't know if it actually would have worked, but I mean, I knew that man, some crazy violent something's about to happen right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Barala Ninja. Yeah, yeah. That could, it could be that. Yeah. Hey, I'm so glad. That in this episode, Worf had no trouble adopting the first rule of Ghostbusters. Mm. If they think you're a god, you say you're a god. Or, or in this case, a seer, but whatever, he's got mystical powers. He can make storms <laughs> stop, and uh, he's like, yeah, it's an omen, because sure, it's an omen. My favorite part is, um, I, I just picture Worf uh, looking under chairs and looking under tables and trying to find the keys to, to 50 million fables. <laughs> They call him nice. the Seer. Seeker. Oh, Seek- Seeker. Seeker. Oh, so Worf, yeah. you're saying, has not been looking low and hot eye. Nope, no, and he's not asked Bob Dylan either. Yeah, no, that's a mistake, because if you get your chance, you should. Okay. Um, <laughs> do you remember the bit Steve Martin used to do about how, uh, how short, how bad our memories are? He, he did this in a stand-up act in the 70s, and, uh, and he would say, you know, people, people just don't remember... Uh, the way that they should. He was like, you remember when uh, when the Earth blew up and we all had to move to this uh, uh, space station that's an exact recreation of the Earth? Nobody nobody remembers that. Nobody remembers that. And I thought that would be a great bit for Varen if he had decided to uh, to stick around. He's going to quit know? chronicling and start comicking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's his good, thing uh, from now on. change. Yeah, not uh-huh. bad. Uh-huh. Um, we've brought it up before, but still... I cannot wait for plastic surgery in the 24th century. <laughs> it is rad. I mean, Worf got new teeth. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. And you just and it's a thing you just pop down to do. Like, okay, well, they removed Nikolai's nose thing. I just, I'll just go get another one. Right. You know? Right. But make sure it looks exactly the same. Because he actually did mm-hmm. that on his own. So now they're going to have to replace it on the Enterprise and have it look exactly the same. What I actually found weird, though, is they took all the trouble to remove the bumps on Warp's uh, head, and then they, like, put a cowl on it. I'm, I'm thinking mostly they didn't actually have to do nearly as much to him as they probably did. <laughs> I'm also wondering, you know, if you're more Klingon than Klingon, are you really going to be okay with them mm-hmm. taking the ridges of your head, like, off? Just, you know, well, it's for a gig. Oh, well, it's for a gig, so I guess then it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I thought Worf might have a problem with that, but then I thought maybe uh, Dr. Crusher, maybe there was something that went wrong. She was like, no, just just wear the cowl. Just just wear this. Come back to me later. But just trust me. Don't don't take this off. <laughs> yeah, really? You don't want to see that. You know, it's still healing. You don't want to mm. look. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about uh, Worf treating Nikolai like a total screw up. Um, I'm sorry. Did I say Nikolai? I meant Dr. Roshenko. 
<laughs> right. Come on. He got through some form of study of some sort. I understand he wasn't Starfleet material, and that's fine. But, I mean, he, he is Dr. Yeah. Roshenko. And Worf's like, you never finished anything. And Nikolai's like, well, except for my doctorate. Yep. Got a degree. Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. But please, tell me about the stuff yeah. I don't finish. Um, I, there was a scene that I thought was handled really well. It's very cold. It's kind of disturbing, actually, to watch the bridge crew watch the destruction of Baral 2. Mm. Um, not only because they're all having different reactions to it, but then you also wonder how many times they've done that or will have to do that again in the future. <laughs> and and Picard's is trying to trying to give his little speech and it, it doesn't fly. Well, not with Nikolai. Everybody else is like, heard it. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But they don't all seem too happy about it. Yeah. No, they don't seem happy about it at all, in fairness. But we'll probably talk again about, you know, what they did and whether they should have done and all that stuff. Um, I did think, though, there is one thing that we do know. You know what Nikolai should have done? What could have turned this whole thing? Mm-hmm. It just brought up a cute little Borellan kid. Oh, yeah. That does it. That does it. If you can get yeah. the kid to talk to the robot, then you've pretty much won, right. the, you've won the game at that point. So, oh. really... He should have just been sending out, like, um, just sending out pictures of cute little Baralan children to Worf. Yeah. Yeah. Where where were they during season two? Yeah. Indeed. So there's a power drain on the Enterprise. You know what you do? Mm-hmm. Send Chief of Security. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Hey, there's something wrong with the engineering of the ship. Uh, security Chief, will you take a security team and figure out what's wrong with the engineering on the ship, please? <laughs> Can do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, made, like, it made no sense. It's like, well, we we need Worf to find his brother. Oh, well, then send Worf to um, ugh, solve the engineering problem. Really? We don't want to send Jordy? No. How about the robot? No. No, because the robot's too busy looking for planets with the doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that, that's what she does, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's really... <laughs> yeah. The Gumby Beam has been turned on and opened wide in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it has. There's a little bit of reason to have Dr. Crusher help Data look for the planet. I mean, I I like the idea of finding a new home that fits perfectly, perfectly. I mean, it it has trees and grass and and therefore it has microbes and Mm -hmm. bugs and and everything is great. uh, But never mind the horrible virus we overlooked uh, because you can't catalog every single virus on there. Or or let's say the the sleeping thunder lizard that wakes up every few months and just eats anything that's too slow to run away. You know? Yeah. Other than that. Great. Remember the TOS episode with the dirty space hippies? I love it. Are you kidding me? The way to Eden. Love that episode. That planet looked fine. Mm-hmm. Until they, like, stepped foot on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Literally. It looked great. Seemed yeah. like it would be a perfect place. And then, uh, yeah, not good. So, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think maybe a little bit more looking into it might have been a good thing. Yeah. Hey, did anybody consider at any point just using an anesthetic gas to knock out the Borallans in the holodeck, make repairs, and then wake them up. <laughs> well, no, apparently. Okay, I'm just saying, you save a lot of time and a lot of effort. Here's a question, though. If you did knock out gas in the holodeck, would they really be knocked out? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, look, because, again, we go, back, we, go back, we go back to crumpet theory. If you yes. can eat a crumpet in the holodeck, then you can pump knockout gas into the holodeck, and it'll work. 
You know, I never took crumpet theory, actually, because it's a uh, uh, bistro math was a prerequisite. And I just I, I could never get my head around bistro math. So it just didn't work for me. Yep. It's advanced. It's like a 301 course at the academy. It is. It is indeed. Uh, so I had a question. They can reach uh, Vaca 6 in 42 hours at maximum warp. I'm curious which maximum warp we're using now. Are we using the speed limit? Like maximum warp or the let's hope there are no cops maximum warp because then when they have yep. to like fill in their logs later, some admiral someplace is going to be like warp nine. I don't remember mm-hmm. giving you permission to go warp nine for this episode. What was going on? You guys were like watching a planet die. Yeah. Well, we had we, we really had to get away from it quickly because it was very depressing. <laughs> so I told them, just gun it. Just get me out of here. And certainly yeah. we weren't dropping people off on a new planet. Yep. Yep. Uh, I yeah. I wondered the same thing. Yeah. Too bad about that speed limit. Um, oh, hey. In my recap, I never mentioned anything about Tarana, the old man's daughter. And the the old man said to Worf, like, I would like for you to marry my daughter if we make it to the village. You know, if I don't make it to the village, and it's like, okay, I'm gonna write that down. I write that down. Oh, nothing ever comes of that. Okay, strike, strike, strike. We're just gonna take that out. Um, interesting moment um we get it that Worf is um he is very highly regarded by the Baralans uh at this point but um yeah it just seems sort of a uh, a superfluous scene therefore I saved it for this part not the recap <laughs> well thank goodness it got in there someplace is there an extended dvd blu-ray whatever yeah. where you know where Worf is like sizing her up <laughs> maybe maybe but, but I tell you, a, a more pertinent question uh, when you're talking about relationships with the Baralans. So what happens when Dabara gives birth to that half Baralan, half human baby? Well, all of their noses can't be exactly alike or the bridges of all of their noses. So maybe it just wouldn't be pronounced. Or maybe the Baralan hmm. um, DNA is stronger. Or maybe it has wings. I mean, we, well, we, we, don't, know. we don't actually know, do we? <laughs> it'll be an interesting thing for uh, for us to. We'll have to. We'll have to read the novel, or the uh, or the comic book, or, or hope for the movie eventually. The Paul Sorvino uh, Star Trek movie that we've all been hoping for. Ah, oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, that wouldn't wouldn't be bad. Wouldn't be bad. Uh, so I have a question: When uh, Voren goes off through the holodeck caverns to find the chronicle that he thinks he dropped, what? Okay. That, that's my question. And then follow-up question. Uh, he finds yeah. it, which brings up another question. What? Because didn't they just like beam them to that little campsite, right? And then he decides, oh, no, I must have dropped it. So I'll go like just as far as the mouth of the cave, which I didn't actually walk into. And Worf knows that. Worf knows that Voren did not walk into the mouth of the cave. Oh, he yeah. He was beamed there. Yeah. So... Even if he dropped it in the mouth of the cave, that's on a planet that's light years behind us now. Mm-hmm. So when he actually finds that chronicle, is the holodeck creating that chronicle for him to find? Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. But let me go back. Let me go back to my initial question. So the guy says, hey, I want to wander off from everybody. And Worf's like, yeah, that's really not a good idea. And he's like, but I want to. And Worf's like, uh, well, OK, fine. Just come back. <laughs> and, and I think the question this brings up for me, and I don't know if I can state it enough. What? <laughs> well, well. so uh, look, here's the thing, though. I've been going back to the Chronicle. All right, so we have a new village that needs a new Chronicle. <laughs> the Chronic what? Okay. The, the Chronicle, yes. <laughs> not, not Chronic. Um, but 
what about the old Chronicle that Worf is just keeping as a souvenir? He literally, he, he picks that thing up and he says to Nikolai, hey, you mind if I keep this? Nah, go ahead. I, like, okay, so if you move from one house to another house, would you just throw away all the photos of your old house? Yeah, it's kind of, it's amazing. Yes, Worf's like, can I take this with me? And Nikolai's like, well, it's, you know, the written history of these people and there's only one copy. But sure. We are used to Paul Sorvino playing the heavy. But in this episode, he is not heavy. He is Worf's brother. In a moment, we'll tackle the big questions like, what's it all mean, man? And, hey, what was that guy doing? Before that, though, a word from the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection uh, from our good friends at Eagle Moss, officially authorized by CBS Studios. And they have just they've done something here that I think is pretty incredible. Um, this new special collection they have, because you heard me say Discovery Starships collection, right? Uh, this features brand new ship concepts and design from uh, CBS's Star Trek Discovery, which, as we record this, is only like to episode three or four. So this is happening right now. Uh, each one of these ships has gone through extensive reference study and has been reproduced under the supervision of Star Trek expert Ben Robinson for accuracy and detail. And if you've seen any of their ships in the past, you know how good they are at stuff like that. Now, Ken, you and I have talked about our love for the teeny tiny starships. Uh, the first thing that you will notice upon receiving your first ship, which would be the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227, is the larger size, almost eight inches from the front of the saucer to the rear of the nacelles. Uh, it's more along the size of the Franklin that was a special edition put out by Eagle Moss. So all the new ships in this special series are in that larger scale. Yet they're still cast in a specially formulated metallic resin and hand-painted with reference to the actual CG models used in production. Each ship also comes with a display base, plus a collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of technology on board. Now, there will be limited quantities coming in early 2018, which means now is the time to guarantee your subscription by reserving your first ship, the Shenzhou, for only $9.95 with free shipping. Uh, the ship itself will be sent to you on or before the 31st of January uh, 2018. Um, that's a crazy price. <laughs> for a ship that big with that much detail? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the good news is they keep coming. New models will then ship monthly and be delivered directly to your door. Subscribers also enjoy an exclusive 20% discount on every Starship in the series, along with free shipping. We should make clear, of course, that 995 is an introductory offer. That's a, hello, we're awesome Starships that are going to be coming to you. So 995 but then it's 20% off the price for each one after that, uh, which will be above the 995 but still lower. I think I think that made sense. Well, I know I think that made sense. I'm not sure. I will find out. You can, of course, cancel your subscription at any time, but why would you want to? Because then no more Discovery Starships. For details on the entire collection and to reserve your place among the first to subscribe, uh, do visit eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. 
That address, again, is eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. So in this week's discussion, I know that there are some big themes to tackle. I know that we will be talking about the Prime Directive. That's kind of the centerpiece of this episode. Uh, but there are some other themes here that I'd like to explore. Uh, one of the first things that I thought of when watching this was that I thought there was a, a thematic tie-in a little bit to who watches the watchers. What happened when you start to mess around with people's beliefs and, and do things like reveal truths to them? We remember what a problem Picard had with that one when they thought he was the Picard. Remind people, um, uh, who watches the Watchers is the one with sort of the proto-Vulcans. Proto-Vulcans, very good, yeah. And they accidentally found out that people were studying them, and then so uh, the, the Enterprise had to kind of extricate themselves from it carefully without wrecking uh, proto-Vulcan society. Correct, correct. Okay. Now, look, I, I know I made a joke about Worf being some kind of god, uh, but these people are deeply spiritual people, and they think that Worf can make storms disappear. And what if storms come back? Not not the kind of storms that they had on their original home planet, but Vaca 6 might have some interesting weather patterns that we, we don't know about yet. And what if there's no Worf to make it go away? Well, they've already sort of been tainted with this idea of this godlike figure who is Nikolai's brother. He's not just like some made-up thing. He's literally Nikolai's brother who showed up, and they all met him, and they all shook his hand, and they saw Nikolai and Worf give each other a hug. And yeah, he's he's like a guy. And then anytime there was a problem, Worf could just say, uh, go in the tent, or um, I'll fix this, or uh, ignore the lines, <laughs> you know? So um, yeah, yeah. So I, I kept thinking about how careful they were, and particularly Picard, how careful they were in Who Watches the Watchers, because any little thing could absolutely throw their their uh, set of spiritual beliefs, for better or for worse, into a tailspin. Well, I mean, the thing to remember, though, is they already had a word for seer. In fact, they had already had a seer, and their seer had died. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the idea that Worf, I mean, Worf might be a particularly powerful seer, but they have this idea of this thing already. They do, but I'm going to venture to say that not every seer could make the weather change. And every seer from here on out is going to be compared to Worf, the seer. Because you're going to have a seer, he's going to be like, this is a good omen. And they're like, okay, we've heard that before. Can you make the storm stop? Yeah. Probably not. That part doesn't really bother me because they've got at least five chronicles, you know, minus the one that Worf took and actually minus the one that Voran killed himself with. So they've got four chronicles, <laughs> yes. which I'm going to guess covers like four generations, which is going to tell stories of seers who are like, and the seer thought, maybe we should go this way, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> generally mm -hmm. speaking. Plus, don't forget, it's actually Nikolai who's going to be writing the history. He's probably going to like play down some of what Worf did. Oh, the, he's yeah. not going to set him up like okay. So there's a super. There's a, there was one time there was a superhero seer who could you know change the weather. They'll probably like you know uh, maybe say you know there was like a miracle that happened or something. But I don't think he'll make Worf like Superman because then really all the other seers do have to live up to that. I mean he's the historian at this point, so he can actually he can write it and guide it um, in a way that won't make people go. <laughs> You suck as a seer to whoever, you know, finally, <laughs> to whoever finally becomes a seer one day again. True. I, I do think that people are going to ask Nikolai, like, hey, it's been a long time since we've heard from Worf. And yeah. you know him really well. It's sort of like asking Clark Kent, like, hey, 
can't you call your friend Superman? Because we could really use him right now, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, not going to happen. Maybe nope. or maybe it happens like the day after he leaves and we don't know. It's quite possible they killed yeah, Nikolai right. two days later. This is one of those things like we don't know what happened with the guy who went with Baylock. We, we don't know. We assume yeah, it went right. well. Yeah, right, right. That's in our rear view mirror, though, and we look forward. Yeah. The Enterprise yeah. has headlights, not taillights. Did you notice mm. last week, by the way, the Enterprise does have headlights? Kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wouldn't think they would need them, and yet there they mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> I know, or I think I know, that we're going to be at odds regarding the Prime Directive. I think you we're think? going to be. I don't know. I think probably, okay. but I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, talk to me about the good that's done by living by the Prime Directive and letting the inhabitants of an entire planet die. Mm, I'm actually going to venture to say none whatsoever. Okay, good. Because I was going to yeah. say, at that point, aren't we just living to the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law? Yeah. Like, you know, we don't want to contaminate their life, so we'll just let their life end. Yeah, it's a position of privilege that uh, the people on the Enterprise are there able to look out from their nice, comfortable bridge, the review screen, and say, um, boy, I'm glad that's not us. Let's all send thoughts and prayers to the people down below who are gasping for air. Mm-hmm. Um, the Prime Directive was designed to ensure non-interference. That's what Troy said. The Prime Directive was designed to ensure non-interference. And I'm trying to figure out, like, is that really, you know, better then what is that about? I mean, that really is the privileged thing, right? Yeah. I'm curious what you think of, uh, I'm curious what you think of Beverly's argument that, you know, aren't we interfering by not doing anything? It kind of reminds me of, you know, the act of observing something changes the thing being observed. Yeah. They, they've already put themselves in that position. Well, but they've only put themselves in the position to see it. I mean, are you interfering mm-hmm. if you don't do anything? <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's kind of, I mean, it's it, that's sort of a weird backward. I mean, it struck me, her argument struck me as emotional. I think you should be emotional. I think these should be emotional arguments because, you know, in this fictitious thing, you're talking about saving lives. There was, um, there, there was an article that I saw recently about one of the last uh, tribes of uncontacted people um, in, in Brazil. Um, six of them had been shot. Because mm-hmm. Why? Because they hadn't been contacted by us, so they didn't know that there was danger, you know, lurking places. And then I don't know why they were shot. I don't know why they were killed. I don't know if they've even caught the people who killed them. But these are people for whom we've gone prime directive, right? Oh, no, no, leave them because they're untouched. And that's great, you know, until a bulldozer runs them over or until somebody shoots them for what? For sport? For getting onto, you know, land that, you know, we've decided is ours, even though they just look at the land as like, oh, look, a place to go stand. And I don't know everything about that situation. I do know, though, that it seems a very prime directive thing to say, oh, no, no, let's not talk to them because we don't want to contaminate their way of life. Uh, we're just going to grow up around it and eventually crush it. Or, we're, you know, we're just going to let, you know, whatever happens happen because we don't want to interfere. And then, you know, eh, if bad things happen, well, maybe we should have said something. I want to I want to back away from the prime directive as the prime directive, though. Okay. I don't want it to be a specific set of ideas, you know, that we've always talked about, but instead, you know, as a code by which one lives, which is what I've been saying about the Prime Directive since we started covering TOS. Sure. Um, How should one act when, you know, right butts head with that code? Yeah. I mean, there's no way that letting those people die is right, but the Federation, Starfleet, they do have this code. And I'm thinking also about 
you know, like like times in U.S. history, it used to be cool to own slaves. You know, and, and I would argue it's not really cool, but, you know, I'm, I'm using a shorthand was, there. Uh, acceptable, shall we say. Right. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't cool, but on paper, yeah. it was fine. Yeah. Um, we had a code that allowed for it. Different from the prime directive, because the prime directive calls for actions rather than simply allowing for things, right? But mm-hmm. we had a code that allowed for something that harmed others, and eventually we changed that code. Talk to me about about because I find myself. I know I've always said the prime directive is. I mean, I don't even care what the words are of the prime directive, but I I know that it means that it's a code by which the Federation lives. And so that that's really what that's a stand-in for, for me. What do you mm-hmm. do when the way that you've always thought is is demonstrably wrong? What do you do when the way that you've always, you know, wh- even though it's written on the thing and they've all got it and they all know that, you know, the the, 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 the prime thing, thing number one is, is stay out of it. Yeah. <laughs> but then stay out of it. It's going to get somebody killed. Do you go ahead and live by that code at that point? Or do you break the rules and uh, and save the people? Well, look, last week on this very program, uh, Mm -hmm. Mission Log, for those of you who are listening along with us, last week we had a discussion about the abuse of loyalty and how loyalty to a person undermined loyalty to a principle. The principle was lost because Pressman was demanding loyalty from Riker to himself just because he felt that's the way the order should be. And it was self-serving to uh, to to Pressman's ideals. Mm-hmm. So this episode, we have the opposite. And and I would argue that Picard's loyalty to the principle undermines loyalty to respect for life. It undermines the compassion that he should have that clearly the other people on his crew have. I mean, uh, Beverly expresses it. Uh, I, Deanna is expressing the intent of the rule. But when they cut to her reaction on that scene on the bridge, it doesn't seem like she's too accepting of the outcome. Talk to me about her interpretation of that. She says the prime directive was designed to ensure non-interference. I mean, is that mm-hmm. is that really why the prime directive is there? I mean, is the Federation really about stay out of it? Well, I mean, this is the difficulty because it sounds like it's a case-by-case thing. You know, it, the various ways that the prime directive have been argued to say, well, it's only for societies that have not developed warp capability. So we're not just going to show up and say, hey, we're aliens from another planet. By the way, there are other planets. And by the way, there are people living on those planets. And by the way, we have technology that far outpaces yours. So we're just going to hand it to you or or dump all of this on you. So I, I get the intention in that respect. So it kind of goes back to what you were saying, that we don't just show up uh, at, uh, at, a, at a remote village that has not had contact with the outside world and just start dumping, you know, iPhones and iPads on them and saying, here, here's how the world works now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand that as as a guide as a guiding principle, as an important guiding principle. But look, this is a different thing. If if you were somebody who came across that remote village and those people were dying and you could do something about it, you would, I hope, feel a human compunction to do something about it. So then what do you make of the fact that our captain was willing to let that happen? I feel like he was loyal too much to the principle rather than the or or to the letter of the law 
the the principle being described as opposed to maybe the 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 human intent behind it the compassionate intent behind it you know it, it was one thing when the conditions were such that you could leave a guy like nikolai on the planet and say um here don't make a mess don't interrupt these people you're going <laughs> right. to be hidden take notes and 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 stay back you know you can be in touch with us we can get you out of here when we need to get you out of here but then suddenly when the entire thing is on the verge of collapse and we and it's not just that we lose the people who are there we're also losing an entire culture we're also losing an entire a, a, an entire history that goes along with it mm-hmm. you know and i suppose that somebody could make the argument they say well you, you know what if those people grew up to become something else you know, what if by changing their history, they become something terrible? What if? And there are all these what ifs you can throw at it. Um, but I, I think that uh, Data actually had had a great line. He said, I don't believe we can offer any guarantees. We can simply make the best choice we have at the moment. And the best choice in this case, look, you go back to the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I, I would also say that, it, yeah, they may have taken the precautions to do no harm, but allowing harm to happen is just as bad. Um, this is a great exploration uh, of this question of the prime directive. It, you know, we have to ask ourselves if they use it fairly from one place to the other. Um, and and if indeed non-action is the same thing as action, I, I think that here you can argue that it is. Nikolai's words back to Picard, or no, actually back to Worf, were great. Nikolai says, I refuse to be bound by an abstraction. Mm -hmm. And and again, you know, that place of privilege on the bridge where it's nice and safe and temperature controlled and a computer will talk to you and make you a cup of tea. That's great. But it's also then coming up with principles in the abstract when there are people right in front of you who are dying. Picard says we must honor the lives we cannot save. And Nikolai says back to him, I find no honor in this, Captain. I actually found uh, Picard's homily there um, disingenuous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not cannot save, it's will not save. Yeah. I got I to ask you another question, though, if you don't mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. Uh, were you a fan of the capital T truth? Yeah. Can you actually be a fan of the Prime Directive? I know I've talked before about Ian Banks' books, um, which uh, they're the culture novels is what they're called. I don't think I can remember last time, but I know I've said it on the show before. The way that whole thing is set up is they've got faster than light travel. They've got robots that are sentient. I mean, they've got they've got all kinds of different. They've got weapons. They've got governments. They've got you know uh, ships. They've got everything, right? Mm-hmm. And and across the universe or across the galaxy anyway or across the part of the galaxy that they know about. There are all sorts of different levels of development, and mm-hmm. it's everything from people who live in castles and fight with bows and arrows to people who are almost as advanced as the culture is. And yeah. anytime they find them, they land on their planet, and they're like, so listen, here's what's up. There are other planets. There are lots of other people. You are far from alone in the universe. You are welcome to come play if you want to, or if you want to stay here, we'll leave you alone. But you need to know what's really going on. And now it's up to you whether you want to go ahead and advance quickly or just stay here and play by yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that not seem like a? I mean, I, I, I have a I have a problem with the prime directive, both literally and figuratively, at this point because 
It's not because I want everything to be handed to me, but why let me as a planet, why let us as a planet stumble through however many disasters and disastrous possibilities before we finally get to a place where where we have a where we have an engine the size of a walnut that'll take from <laughs> point A to point B, right? Yeah. Or or teleportation or, or or whatever else might be out there. Why Figuratively, I have a problem with it because I have a problem with the way it stands in the Star Trek society. But then uh, actually I have a problem with it because if it means, you know, letting other people fall to their doom, if it means letting people die because, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, we don't know what's going to happen anyway. All we know is we're not going to be responsible for it. Yeah. And that seems like a that seems like a bad way to be. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I I still get the intention of not meddling where you haven't been asked to meddle. I, I get that. I, I really do. Um, but when it comes to the truth of the capital T, once that has been breached, I, I think that you owe it to those other people to give them the truth. Look, I, I loved how they set up Varen as a character and what his struggle was. Um It's heartbreaking, the decision that he made, because clearly he is in the best of all possible scenarios of being found by an alien culture. Mm -hmm. You know, good thing he wasn't picked up by the Ferengi or the Romulans or the Borg. It's a good thing he was picked up by by whom he was picked up, but he couldn't handle it. He couldn't deal with it. And and it's too bad. I, I wonder if at that point. And here we are again, you know, playing the home game, rewriting the episode. If at that point, do you just open up the holodeck doors and you let a Troy and a Picard and a Crusher and and a Data all go in and say, hey, look, there's only like eight or ten of you. We're going to level with you and what's going on. <laughs> you know? Yeah, good point. There were actually more feeders of Vault than there were of this uh, particular village that he saved. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, things are probably not going to go well for them anyway. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a horrible thought. I don't know. I mean, when you 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 say though, you wait until that uh, you wait until that that um, that barrier is breached. I'm thinking about penicillin. Hmm. Like they don't know that there's medicine, so I'm not going to tell them about penicillin, even though it might save them. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how far you take the whole uh, truth with the capital T thing. Well, but are they in immediate danger? That, that that's the question. These people are in immediate danger. Now, yeah. if you go back to a real world example, are the people in a little remote tribe? Do they need penicillin, or are are they, by all reasonable, measurable accounts, healthy and happy? So then you think truth is only oh, that's an, oh, oh really mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. so oh yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah I brought up the H word yeah I said the H word well right a few weeks show. ago yeah. I said you know let Data's robot mom be happy yeah. that's fine <laughs> she doesn't need the capital T truth and you're like mm, no I side with capital T truth and so now I'm saying okay so if you find a tribe of people who have been uncontacted we should go ahead and contact them because things might actually go worse for them besides don't they need to know the truth of what's around them and what's out there. But you're mm-hmm. saying if they're happy, then let them be. Uh, you know, I think Data's mom is a little bit different. She's a robot mom <laughs> with a robot kid. You know? Uh, so you're saying case-by-case case basis is what you're I saying. am saying case-by-case case basis. But, yeah. I, I, you know, again, by, by reasonable, measurable standards, you could go like, okay, these people are all right. They don't need us. Hey, we'll, we'll stop and observe, and we'll, we will stay out of their way. But if they're actually in danger and not just going 
themselves to die, but their entire planet, their entire culture be wiped out from memory. Um, I, I think we would be morally bound to do something about it. Okay. I mean, I, I don't, I obviously I don't disagree. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm surprised that you're not more of a just, ah, let's just go tell everybody, hang the prime directive. <laughs> <laughs> let's tell everybody who we are and what we do. And if they want to come play, that'll be fantastic. Well, in, in this case, when we're talking about everybody, we're talking about all of the Boralans who have been saved. And yeah, I kind of look, it's interesting. They left it up to Varan, but I, I kind of think that, um, there may not have been such a bad thing to actually reveal this information to the rest of them. Look, we saved you. I know it's weird. We're on a spaceship. I get it. But yeah. we're going to take you to a new place, and you're going to be all right. There was a lot about Voran, actually, that um, reminded me of First Contact, the episode, not the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, how can we grow when everything that made us who we are is gone? Uh, you know, says this one guy who knows their history backwards and forwards. He is, in fact, the keeper of their history. In first contact, when you know the leader of a planet is on the verge, that's on the verge of faster than light travel, you know, meets with a very fundamentalist member of his cabinet. He decides, okay, well, our whole planet's not ready for this, and we can't do this because you know this this one faction over here is not ready for it. So none of us can go play. Well, you can go play. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. one person, can go play. How is she, by the way? Have we have we heard from her lately? Should we nope, be worried? Should we call yeah, someone? Don't. Mm -mm. Nope, don't think we have. Yeah. Voren basically does the same thing because Voren is not prepared to deal with it. Then his society is not prepared to deal with it. He's having trouble coping uh, with what he's learned. So he decides that his people definitely couldn't handle this. Now, maybe he's right. He knows his people better than I do. And certainly um, Nikolai was very upset at the possibility of Voren coming back in and telling them the truth, which yeah. also struck me as odd because he's like he's monkeyed around with stuff quite a bit. Sure. But without letting them know that he has. And so then the idea of these people finding out that they're not alone in the universe, uh, he thinks is absolutely horrific. That he thinks will destroy them. Well, no, it'll change them. And some of them might not handle it, but I don't think they're like a suicide cult. I don't think they're all going to kill themselves because, no, no. oh, we're still alive, we're still breathing, we're still walking around, this can't possibly be. And, and remember, uh, Nikolai is about to father a, a child that is a totally unknown quantity. So that's you want to true. talk about a guy who's monkeyed around with their culture? He is really monkeyed around with their culture. That's, 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 yeah. that's true. Yeah. You should take his baby and take him to another planet and see if he has superpowers. That's really right. what Ooh. they ought to do. Yeah, yeah. that's good. So that's I'm good. to think of it. They should do that with all the Borellans. Uh, Vorn's line, you, you mentioned uh, how can we grow when everything that made us who we are is gone. Um there was something tragic at the heart of Voren's outlook. His concern about the Chronicle is great. And um, it, it reflects the conversation being had elsewhere about where the Boralans are from and where they're headed and what this all does to their identity. But, but ultimately, I thought, you know, the, the positive end of what's happening to those Boralans is that it is those individuals who make them, who make their culture what they are, not a location. Um, I, I like this sort of home is where the heart is message. Um, Voren's identity is so tied up in where he's from and who he's with. And I get it. And, and some people truly are, but some people aren't. And I want to imagine the happier alternative that that he or at least if he couldn't because clearly he couldn't cope but but others in his group 
can adapt to this new life and create a new and hopefully better life for themselves. Um, but he seemed so fundamentally tied to these ideas of location and history, which are very easy to grow emotionally attached to. Um, but you sort of want to take him by the hand and say, look, it, it can also be great over here. Certainly better than the death and destruction that you left behind. With Nikolai, about as deep in witness protection as he can get. It is time to see what we can take from homework. This week's episode, Homeward, featuring the incomparable Paul Servino. Although I bet if you tried, you could compare him to someone. Time now to talk the, the messages, morals, and meanings of this episode and figuring out uh, whether the whole thing holds up because that's the part of the show that we're up to right now. Uh, homeward, John, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, look, the, this episode is excellent. And it so easily could not have been, uh, but you've got perfect casting here. Um, if Nikolai had been played a little more evil or played as a wacky eccentric or, or anything other than what we got, it would not have worked. Hmm. Um, but he is so good in this and so believable in this that um, I I was not only taken in by his story, but I was taken in by the, the really big ideas that this episode was grappling with. And I love the idea that we kind of, we found a bit of a flaw in Picard here. You know, uh, that that's a rarity for Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, now, look, there, there is one negative thing here that I'll say. Uh, obviously, I love Paul Sorvino. Obviously, you do, too. He is an incredible actor. Mm -hmm. From a writing standpoint, there is no reason to make him Worf's brother. Right. At all. Right. Um, you could have accomplished everything you needed to accomplish without kind of throwing that in. Um, but they did. Okay, I'm going to forget in three weeks that he was Worf's half-brother. I'm only going to think about what was the, the heart of this episode, which was the ethical dilemma in there. So I, I can kind of give them a pass on that and say, yeah, unequivocally, this episode holds up. Well-produced, well-acted, and, and a great exploration of Star Trek ideas. Um, are you on the same page? I can't remember what the episode was. I've already forgotten the name of it, unfortunately. The one with Waxana, where we find out that she has a daughter. Um, uh, Dark Page. A, a Dark Page, thank you. Another daughter. Uh, besides, or had another daughter because she passed away. A lot of people wrote to us and said that really gave some depth to Waxana's character. And I really feel like it didn't because it wasn't a thing that existed before. And I doubt it's a thing that we're ever going to hear about again. And same goes here for Worf. When you talk about the House of Moog stuff, mm -hmm. that was actually character development for Worf. This does not feel like character development for me. This feels like tacking something on for some reason. And enough already with developing Worf's backstory. We've, we've developed Picard's backstory quite a bit. We've developed Worf's backstory quite a bit. We've developed Data's backstory quite a bit. We haven't done a lot with Crusher. We haven't done a lot with um, with Riker, although we did last week with the Pegasus, I suppose, and I guess we did when his dad came on, but that was so long ago. Mm -hmm. I, I would rather have had them really spending time debating what they were doing and why than spending the time with, you're a jerk, you're a jerk, 
We never got along, did we? No, we didn't. What am I going to tell mom? Ah, tell her what you want. I don't care. I live on another planet now. Screw it. I'm done. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that part was kind of a drag and it was kind of a waste. But the stuff that it gave us to chew on was absolutely fantastic. I mean, that was that was actually some really good, really fun stuff. Um, I'm not sure it's as good an episode as we both think it is because we really like chewing on the really fun stuff. Yeah. But um, I like it. So I'm going to say for me, it was a good episode. Uh, you can just sort of ignore the parts where they bicker. I, I think I do have to take issue with one thing that you said, and this is the problem. This is the problem I have with this episode. I don't think we found a flaw in Picard. Hmm. I think we found a flaw in the Federation. I think we found a flaw in Starfleet. I think we found a flaw in the Prime Directive, which I've always thought was a flawed thing anyway. Picard can't just go around breaking the Prime Directive when he feels like it. Well, I mean, he's I, never done that before. Well, I know, but but we've always said, should he be allowed to do that? I mean, if anybody finds out about what he did here, he should lose his ship, right? He should lose his captaincy. I mean, what should be happening right now is Nikolai should be in some brig someplace, and all the Borellans should be dead. And Jellico should be in command of the Enterprise <laughs> because he broke, I can't remember, is it the third directive? No. Is it the second? No. It's the prime directive. But the prime directive needs to go away. I mean, that's one of the questions that I. <laughs> we need to look at the things that govern us. We need to figure out why the things that govern us govern us the way they do. If something doesn't work anymore, if we come across something too many times, it ends up with a thousand people dead on some planet someplace because, oh, no, no, we had a strict don't touch policy because it was written 100 years ago that no, 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 we don't get involved. We don't touch. I mean, then you sort of have to look at that again. I don't feel like this was a failing on Picard's part. I feel like, you know, Picard should have gone then back to Federation headquarters crying and saying, hey, let me show you this video. Let me show you what I found. Let me show you what I saw this week. Mm -hmm. I know it's easy for you to sit here on Earth and say Prime Directive, because for you, that means not disturbing an anthill. Where I am, people are dying. Yeah. And we really need to think about really why we're doing this thing that we're doing. So... I mean, I'm not, I'm not just trying to argue with you. Picard was the best Starfleet captain he could be in that point. He was a horrible human being. And so what you have to question then is whether being the best Starfleet captain is the right thing to do, or should we be fighting for a better Starfleet at that point, or a better Federation? One that won't say, yeah, I really wish there was something we could have done, but there wasn't. I mean, there was. Because we could have done something, but we didn't because we can't, even though we could. You see what I mean? I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look, uh, if you look at Star Trek as the history of the future, the history of the future is littered with Starfleet captains breaking the prime directive. Uh, sometimes, you know, on a whim. <laughs> because it felt like the right thing to do. Um, because she's cute. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So um, I, I would still argue that uh, th this is this is a problem. I mean, uh, you don't have to call it a flaw, but it, it, it's a problem that uh, Picard, who has shown great humanity. I mean, look, uh, uh, Picard, first season Picard didn't laugh. Later season Picard, he, he started to laugh and he started to kind of like kids a little bit, not a lot but a little bit. 
Um, well, take it the other way, though. I mean, we joke at the end of almost every episode. It's like, okay, so really that should have gotten, you know, character X bounced from Starfleet, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, Data should be in several pieces on several different ships so that that horrible monstrosity can never be put back together because chances are he will kill somebody or steal a ship. Yeah, right. right. Right? And Riker should no longer be second in command, and Worf killed the guy in front of everybody, so he shouldn't be there anymore. So, I mean, if we're going to... So, are we are we kidding about that? It's okay for Worf to do to kill whoever he wants to because we like Worf, and so it's okay for Picard to break the rules of the organization that he serves because we like Picard? Or does this need to be a thing where Picard goes back and says, wow, we've been, like, really screwed up for, like, 100 years? Yeah, no, that would be an interesting episode. Uh, I would like to see him make that argument. Because everybody can make that argument. It's probably Picard. Yeah, it's true. That's true. Otherwise, he might have to pull a... Pull a some sort of insurrection or something at some point. Oh, oh, that's an interesting word to use. Hard to yeah. imagine that happening because I can't see because he's so letter of the law, at least in this yeah. episode. Yeah, right. Okay. I didn't mean to get us back into the whole discussion again, but it's a discussion, honestly, that keeps it keeps tugging on me. Um, yep. So I guess maybe that's my message. It, it's not the people who serve under the system that's flawed, but the system itself. And those people need to be willing to work to make that system better instead of saying, eh, what can you do? It's the system. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a message that I picked up, even though I didn't mean to. What about you, sir? What messages did you find? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting how the lies tend to compound each other. You know, every time they think that they've got, uh, oh, this is the one last thing that we have to do and it'll make it all better. Well, no, then another <laughs> thing comes up <laughs> to actually compound. And the that's, why we, that's why we have the prime directive. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. yeah you could keep making Which, that argument. Yeah, I don't yeah. think we should have it, but that's uh, that's probably why we have the Prime Directive. Oh, remember that time we put kudzu down in Georgia? That went well. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. 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 There you go. Um, I, I still, I, I like Data's line. I do not believe we can offer any guarantees. We can simply make the best choice we have at the moment. You know, I, I, I do like the uh, the phrase, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a, a pretty good argument for that to say that um, Data is making good choices. The people on the Enterprise are making good choices given what they've got. They're going to try and make it the best they can, but there aren't any guarantees on what they're doing. Um, I think that's fine. I think that's a, a perfectly legitimate starting place uh, for what they're doing. Because again, and this comes to my final uh, thesis, the final message I got out of this, is that sometimes compassion needs to override logic. Or, or strike logic and and put in uh, loyalty to a principle, as the uh, as the thing that compassion needs to override. Um, we could debate whether Picard is flawed or not, but there's something very chilling about Picard sort of by rote getting up to make a speech that nobody wants to hear, because the compassion has been sort of sucked out of the room. So it's nice to see these characters challenged by that idea to say that their loyalty to a principle won't always get them out of every situation, won't always be the perfect fit for what is actually right to do. So, um, yeah, I I think this is what makes this a challenging, interesting episode for us to pick apart. Do you think Picard even learned that lesson, though, because... It was really funny, actually, to see him at the end of it. In the beginning, he's like, I can't believe you did this, Doctor. And in the end, he's like, yeah, our plan for them worked. 
<laughs> oh, really? Our plan. Did our plan? Let me write that down. Our plan worked. Yeah, yeah. Authors of that plan. Uh, Captain Picard. I'm just going to put a question mark by your name because I don't really remember you being an architect of that plan. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Roddenberry does all kinds of stuff, including, oh, what's that? Podcasts? Yeah, you can check out this show, as well as Women at Warp and Priority One, all at podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to help support this show directly, patreon.com slash missionlog is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM, that's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Sub Rosa. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Now, it is all over. And that is the worst part. But do not worry. We will see you next week. See you next week. And transmission. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on Earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide-open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.